the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the, let's see, is this the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show? James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice, he's given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Today we're going to talk with um, Craig Prather. He's the author of Transformed by the Spirit. He has a... uh, I'll find this here. He has a connection to Multnomah University and Seminary. Uh, he serves as an adjunct professor of spiritual formation and pastoral ministry at Multnomah University. He's currently a doctoral student uh, for spiritual formation at uh, Denver Seminary. He also has an um, MDiv from Multnomah University with a concentration on spiritual formation. He's the author of other books, currently resides in Reno, Nevada with his family, and he'll join us today to talk about his latest book, Trans. Transformed by the Spirit. Now, you may notice as I'm doing the program, there are occasions in which I stumble as I'm trying to decipher what's on the written page. I'm still struggling just a little bit with my vision. I have two pairs of glasses. One is for distance reading. One is for close up. Unfortunately, neither of them quite fits everything. So I'm finding sometimes in the middle of a segment, I might be trying to change my glasses. Otherwise, I'm just sort of struggling through Um, what I'm uh, trying to reference. Uh, So I want to apologize for that. And uh, my prayer is that my vision will improve along with everything else. I was at my um, grandniece's, let's see, it was her music program at a Southwest Bible Church just a few days ago. And I noticed as I was watching her from uh, the sanctuary, she looked kind of blurry. And these were my long distance glasses. And I thought, well, that's sort of odd. I took them off and I could actually see her more clearly without them than with them, which was evidence to me that my eyes are changing and for the better. So I'm hopeful that um, perhaps I can restore the vision that I had. If not, I'll continue to wrestle with the, uh, the glasses. In fact, when I went to pick the glasses up a few weeks ago, that was the one thing that needed to happen before I could return to the mic here on uh, KPDQ, I remember crying in the <laughs> in the optometrist's office because my vision was so bad, I wasn't sure I would ever be able to see well enough to read uh, or to do uh, do the work that I uh, that I love. And these glasses have allowed me to do that. So I don't want to sound like I'm complaining, but just trying to explain a little bit of the fumbling uh, that you may have. Uh, heard over the last several weeks, but I'm on the mend, so hopefully that will continue to improve as well. I wanted to begin today's program by acknowledging someone who made a significant impression on my life. I never met this young man, but his life has come to mean a great deal to me over these last nine years. I have on my calendar, my personal calendar on my cell phone, the anniversary of his death because I don't want to forget him. He represents for me so many young people who have served our country and lost their lives in the process. I'm referring to Corporal Keaton Grant Coffey. He was in the United States Marine Corps canine handler. And uh, today on Facebook, his father had uh, left a tribute to his son. And I wanted to share that with you as Memorial Day approaches to remind us that we have some things to be 
uh, mindful of, people we need to remember. We may not know their names, their rank, their serial number. We may not be familiar with the specific sacrifices they made, but there are men and women who have made the ultimate sacrifice for our safety and peace, and we need to uh, give honor where honor is due. This is what his father wrote. Grant Coffee. That's his father's name. I had to turn and look at my computer screen. This is what Grant Coffee wrote about his son, Keaton Grant Coffee. It's been an unbelievable nine years since I lost the light of my life. Corporal Keaton Grant Coffee, United States Marine Corps canine handler. He was 22 years old, attached to Special Ops um, MARSOC Team 8123, and fell beside his brothers in battle on 524-12 in Helmand, Afghanistan. With all of the negative nonsense that we've experienced over the last year, let Keaton's sacrifice awaken you to what is truly good in this world. Keaton heard the call and answered unwaveringly. Isaiah 6, 8 says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And I said, Here I am, send me. With Memorial Day approaching, never forget that ordinary people can sleep well at night because rough men stand ready to visit violence on those who would do us harm. My son was a warrior, well respected by his fellow warriors, and though I lost my only son, I've gained dozens more. The Lord has given me these trials, and because of my boy, I have learned this. You are defined by not what you destroyed, but by what you built. Not by what you take, but by what you give. Not by who you hated, but by who you loved. Not that you left, but rather uh, by what you left behind. My son was a Christian man and sits in the presence of our Lord alongside fellow heroes. But let this be motivation for you to live for a higher purpose and also to reject and fight the evils of this world and to respect and honor our living heroes, military, fire, police, dispatch, medical personnel. Reject any efforts to cheapen their service. I have included some of the tributes that are on the web today in honor of my precious son, Keaton, Semper Fi, and God bless all of you. So today's program, we do in honor of Corporal Keaton Grant Coffey, United States Marine Corps K-9 handler. Now, he is not the only one who made the ultimate sacrifice, but he stands as a representative today to so many others who have done just that. Thank you, Corporal Keaton Grant Coffey. Well, taking a look at the news, Oregon Governor Kate Brown is expected to grant Multnomah County's request to move to lower risk by Thursday. That's what Charles Boyle, who is the deputy communications director for the governor, said. Governor Brown will announce uh, county risk level movements on Tuesday, so sometime today if it, it already hasn't taken place. Five counties, Benton, Deschutes, Hood River, Lincoln, and Washington have already moved to lower risk. Boyle said if Multnomah County's equity plan is approved, it's going to be allowed to enter lower risk by Thursday. Now, to move to lower risk, 65% of the county's residents must have at least one dose of the vaccine, and the county must submit an, uh, an equity plan outlining how the county plans to close equity gaps in its vaccination efforts. Multnomah County met the first requirement two weeks ago and submitted its equity plan on Friday, along with a letter from county commissioners asking to move to lower risk by Wednesday. Says uh, Mr. Boyle, speaking to KGW earlier in the day, while Multnomah County equity plan is still under review, we do expect Multnomah County to be approved to enter lower risk by Thursday. Well, Multnomah County Commission Chair Deborah Kafori got the same message from the governor's office, according to Julie Sullivan Spaghetti, a spokesperson for Kafori's office. The governor's office notified the chair that if OHA approves the equity plan submitted on Friday, Multnomah County can move to lower risk on Thursday, May the 27th. 
27th. Sullivan uh, Springetti told uh, KGW that we are awaiting word of approval from OHA. So that would be ahead of the Memorial Day weekend holiday. Moving to lower risk will allow the county to significantly uh, reduce its COVID-19 restrictions. The lower risk level allows a maximum of 50% capacity indoors at restaurants, theaters, gyms, and other indoor Uh, entertainment spaces. It also expands uh, retail stores capacity to 75%. Now, the news that the county is expected to be granted approval to move to lower risk by Thursday coincides with Monday's report that the Portland Trailblazers will expand capacity with vaccinated sections in the Moda Center in time for Thursday's home playoff game against the Denver Nuggets. Now, the Blazers uh, beat the Nuggets in Game 1 in Denver on Saturday and play Game 2 at uh, Ball Arena in Denver on Monday night. But the series shifts to Portland for Game 3 on Thursday and Game 4 on Saturday. For the final two weeks of the season, the Blazers were allowed to have fans in the Moda Center at 10% capacity, about 2,000 fans. But Portland Trailblazers uh, President Chris McGowan, he said that the team will be able to allow 8,000 fans for Game 3. He said he hopes that number can increase as conditions change during the Blazers' playoff Run. So there you have it, some of the outcome of that um, that change. Meanwhile, Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine was 100% effective in adolescents aged 12 to 17 in a clinical trial the company announced on Tuesday. Well, the findings stem from a U.S. study involving over 3,700 kids called Teen Cove. Moderna intends to submit the findings to regulators around the world in early June. We are encouraged, they say, that the mRNA-1273 was highly effective at preventing COVID-19 in adolescents. It is particularly exciting to see that the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine can prevent SARS-CoV-2 infection. That's a quote from Stefani Bansell, uh, the CEO of Moderna, in a statement posted on Tuesday. We will submit these results to the U.S. FDA regulators globally in early June and request um, authorization. We remain committed to doing our part to help end the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, you can take that for uh, what it's worth, but I'm passing along the information for your information. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we're going to hear from Craig Prather. He's the author of Transformed by the Spirit. The book is published by Karis Publishing, and he has a Multnomah University and Seminary connection. We'll tell you more about that uh, when he joins us in our next two segments. Well, Rand Paul received a death threat package with white powder and a violent and profane message. The FBI is investigating a suspicious package. It was filled with white power, um, powder rather, and bared the image, um, uh, an image threatening violence that arrived at the Republican senator's home in Kentucky on Monday. On the outside of the envelope was a picture of a bruised and bandaged Rand Paul with a gun to his head and a threat uh, printed beneath it. I'll finish what your neighbor started. And then some expletives. A copy of the image was obtained by media. Paul, in 2017, was assaulted by his neighbor uh, while doing yard work. His neighbor uh, badly injured the senator, breaking five of his ribs, and eventually pled guilty to assaulting a member of Congress. I take these threats immensely seriously, Paul wrote in a statement on Monday. I've been um, targeted multiple times now. It is reprehensible that Twitter allows C-list celebrities 
uh, to advocate for violence against me and my family. This must stop. Just this weekend, Richard Marks called for violence against me, and now we receive this despicable powder-filled letter. Marks, an American singer, tweeted Sunday, I'll say it again. If I ever meet Rand Paul's neighbor, I'm going to hug him and buy him as many drinks as he can consume. Well, Rand Paul had another uh, close call as he and his wife, Kelly, were surrounded by a mob as they tried to make it back to their hotel following Donald Trump's Republican National Convention acceptance speech at the White House. In other developments, Rand Paul is refusing to get vaccinated because he already had COVID-19, and he's accusing the mainstream media of not asking Fauci the right questions about the China lab and virus research. He and Mr. Fauci again are sparring over COVID origins and the controversial Wuhan lab. As you might recall, Dr. Fauci is now um, lightening up on his refusal to acknowledge that Wuhan may have played a role by saying that it may not have COVID-19 may not have originated from natural causes. Meanwhile, President Biden's uh, Department of Justice announced a plan to appeal the uh, order to release the Trump obstruction memo. The U.S. Department of Justice announced on Monday that it plans to partially appeal a court ruling earlier this month that called for the release of a legal memorandum the Trump-era Justice Department prepared for then-Attorney General William Barr before he announced his conclusion that President Trump did not obstruct justice during the Russia investigation. The Department of Justice announced its decision just before the midnight deadline and appealed to U.S. District Judge Amy Berman Jackson to stay her May 3rd decision during the appeal process. The department, which is led by Attorney General Merrick Gardland, said in a court filing that the government acknowledges that its uh, briefs could have been clearer and it deeply regrets the confusion that caused. But the government's counsel and declarations did not intend to mislead the court. End quote. Well, the judge said earlier this month that Barr's Justice Department had obscured the true purpose of the memorandum when it withheld the document. Well, Jackson chastised Barr for his general handling of the Robert Mueller um, report, saying he his characterization of what he's um, he'd hardly had time to skim, much less read closely, prompted an immediate reaction as politicians and pundits took to their microphones and Twitter feeds to decry what they feared was an attempt to hide the uh, the ball. Garland's decision will likely result in some backlash from Democrats who have called for transparency. Reuters reported that a group of Senate Democrats uh, called on Garland to not to appeal that decision. In other developments, Democrats and the mainstream media smear Republicans with false claims of Russian collusion again. And Ron Johnson says the House's 9-11 style commission will investigate the January 6th riot to keep the false narrative alive. Florida Governor DeSantis, he signed a, a law to hold big tech companies accountable for their content moderation practices. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on Monday signed the measure that he says will protect state residents from Silicon Valley's power grab on speech, thought and content. Well, the big tech uh, bill, as DeSantis calls it, allows residents to fight back against deplatforming and censorship allowing them to sue tech companies for up to $100,000 in damages for each proven claim in a bid to ensure companies are more transparent about their content moderation practices. The law requires companies to detail how they reach conclusions about content moderation and stick to those standards consistently, DeSantis said during a press conference on Monday. The Florida Attorney General will also be able to bring action against tech companies that violate the law, which prohibits the deplatforming of political candidates as well.
In other developments, the governor asks if Fauci's COVID-19 origin remarks will result in censorship. And President Trump, or rather former President Trump, has launched a new communications platform months after Twitter and Facebook banned him. A Democrat congressman is calling out progressives, deafening silence on anti-Semitic remarks and attacks. And as reporting on the coronavirus lab leak theory grows, critics accuse the media of suffering amnesia on the topic. The Whitmer administration has rescinded its COVID-19 rule after a photo popped up on social media. And the infamous Bitcoin pizza guy who squandered his $365 million haul says he has no regrets. An economist is warning there are no anchors holding inflation down. Well, PPP loan fraud schemes ran wild as the government doled out billions of dollars. At least 120 have been charged so far. Democrats are battling within over the anti-Semites among them. Some are calling out the far-left elements, but they have their work cut out. As another story notes, more than 500 Democratic staffers who worked on U.S. President Joe Biden's election campaign have signed a letter calling on him to take a tougher stance on Israel and hold Jerusalem accountable for its actions. Uh, From Gerard um, Baker, while politicians of all parties denounce anti-Semitic violence, the rhetoric on some uh, leading leftist Democrats has helped nourish resentment and prejudice. It's one thing, even if it's wrong, to condemn the actions of the Israeli government in defending its citizens, quite another to question the character of the Jewish state itself. Representative Ilhan Omar, with a strong track record of promoting anti-Semitic tropes, has talked of war crimes committed in Gaza. Her colleague, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, has described Israel as an apartheid state and weighty accusations of violent racism with historic resonance. The same Democrats, including President Biden, who have pounced on other examples of hate crimes in the last few months, sometimes before the evidence of the criminal motivation was even clear, have been oddly silent about people throwing explosive devices at Jewish-owned businesses and shouting, well, expletive, the Jews. You can read more on that in the Wall Street Journal. The media suddenly considers the possibility that the coronavirus may have begun in Wuhan in a lab. Fox News looked at um, how in the past the media labeled anyone who dared suggest such a thing as fringe, Well, things have certainly changed now. Leading scientists and epidemiologists, such as none other than Dr. Anthony Fauci, were so quick to dismiss the lab talk. It was first portrayed as a harebrained, wild and tacitly racist conspiracy theory driven by paranoid Republican senators and fever dream right wing media. Well, now it's seen as not only an acceptable theory worth more study, but one that has broken through into the mainstream. This has happened in a matter of days. Where does Senator Tom Cotton go for his apology? Well, Hugh Hewitt says some platforms covered uh, Senator Tom Cotton extensively, as they did the threat of the virus in December of 2019 and January of 2020, including mine, referring to himself, Hugh Hewitt. MSM dismissed uh, threat, mocked origin, now buries record. Well, in his Washington Post column, Hugh Hewitt looks at why the public doesn't trust the media. Again, you can read more on that in the Washington Post. Well, a new Florida law fines social media companies that bar politicians. And Oregon is demanding proof of vaccines before people are allowed to go maskless. And that appears to include churches.
Well, a shocking decline in population is occurring worldwide. The publication describes uh, ghost cities in northeastern China, South Korean universities scrambling for students, hundreds of thousands of demolished properties in Germany, and shut down maternity wards in Italy, and warned that countries like Hungary, China, Sweden, and Japan are already pushing to balance the combination of swelling older populations with the needs of young people. Later, a host of factors, which the Times described as an avalanche of demographic forces, appears to be accelerating toward more deaths than births almost globally, except in Africa. Demographers predicted to the Times that by the second half of the century or earlier, the global population will enter a sustained decline. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Craig Prather, author of Transformed by the Spirit. We'll talk about spiritual formation with uh, Mr. Prather in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I've been looking forward to a conversation in these next two segments with Craig Prather. He is the author of Transformed by the Spirit. It's a culmination of seven and a half years of formal study in spiritual formation and theology between his undergraduate and graduate work at Multnomah University and Seminary. Well, the main issue that Transformed by the Spirit addresses is the need for all of us as followers of Jesus to develop our relationship with the Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through the various spiritual disciplines and through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're in union with Christ at uh, conversion, yet we're not going to fully be perfected in Christ until he returns, and he will return. Uh, therefore, my next guest points out, we must always work toward Christ-likeness in an effort to become fully mature Christians who comprise a fully mature church. You can find more in Ephesians 4. Well, Craig Prather, he serves as an adjunct professor of spiritual formation and pastoral ministries at Multnomah University. Currently a doctoral student of spiritual formation at Denver Seminary, Craig also has an MDiv from Multnomah University with a concentration in spiritual formation. He is the author of Moved by the Spirit, a daily devotional and living doxology, and currently resides in Reno, Nevada, with his family, and we are delighted to have you with us back here in the Pacific Northwest. Welcome. Yes, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on. Well, let's talk about spiritual formation, because it's a phrase that's often used, but I want to make sure our listeners understand what we're talking about. What is spiritual formation? Sure. Um, So spiritual formation is really not the act of being formed, but more so being transformed Mm -hmm. into Christ-likeness. Uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit and through various spiritual disciplines, uh, such as prayer, meditation, uh, worship, um, fasting, uh, and time in solitude with the Father. And uh, through those uh, various different disciplines, we're able to really build our relationship uh, closer with Christ um, to help form us more in His likeness. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. (laughs) Again, the title of your book is Transformed by the Spirit, and that is exactly what you have uh, described. Now, what you are talking about is a spiritual discipline that we purpose toward, but it's a partnership with the work of the Spirit in us. Is this part of the process of sanctification? Yes, um, very much so. In fact, um, we're not meant to do it alone. <laughs> and mm-hmm. So just like in, uh, in Genesis, where um, Adam was formed, Eve was also 
there, of course, with him, uh, it, it wasn't good that mankind was alone. And so uh, we have partners in, in faith, sisters and brothers in the faith that help form us in our spiritual formation. And we also have, of course, the Holy Spirit, most importantly, inside of us that helps us to grow uh, towards Christ-likeness as well. And so it's really a two-way relationship. And, uh, and I consider it um, just kind of like getting to know a friend or, you know, some, some uh, family member that uh, you go and visit quite often. You want to get to know how they're doing and how things are going. And it's similar to that way. It's, it's a relationship just like we would have on earth. Of course, it's more holy because it's sanctified. And so um, for us, we, yeah, we must definitely engage in the process ourselves uh, in order to be more obedient and be more willing um, to get closer to Christ. Now, oftentimes our um, our own failures um, are the thing that move us toward pursuing a relationship or a deeper relationship with God. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and the role that falling short can play in drawing us uh, toward him in order to seek a deeper and more meaningful relationship with the one who knows us best? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I don't know about you, but most of the time when I'm suffering through something in my life, it's, mm-hmm. it's really then that I tend to look up to God for help. Yeah, and so, you know, I believe that, that uh, the real spiritual coming of age is when we can praise God, not just in our blessings, but also in our trials. Um, and it's interesting, you know, in the Lord's prayer, the prayer where it says, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That word in Greek, uh, in temptation, that word is actually translated as, as trial and tribulation. So what we're indeed saying or asking for, because God would never lead us into a temptation, is we're asking God, um, don't let one of your trials or your, your, tre- your tests or tribulations turn into Satan's temptation. And so we're, we're praying for that in a way in which when we go through a hard time in our life, we can really be formed spiritually because we're allowing God to help us grow through those hardships. And um, that's really uh, what's helped me um, personally, you know, grow grow closer to Christ is just being able to um, face challenges and know that God is always there uh, with me through it. No matter what has happened, when I look back in my life in hindsight, you know, I I realize that God was there and got me through it, and that builds my faith and my trust for the next challenge to come. Yeah, yeah. Tell us a bit about your own journey and what you've discovered along the way. Sure. Um, well, I've had pretty uh, pretty much an eclectic uh, journey. <laughs> I've, I've, uh, I was uh, born again and water baptized as a young man at uh, age 12 at a small Lutheran church in Sparks, Nevada, uh, and that was back in 1988. And then I became really more involved with the church throughout my teen years. So I was a member of you know several non-denominational and charismatic churches, and uh, where I served in different ministries, youth ministry um, and worship team, and did some discipleship with other people there. And then I was uh, mentored by a wonderful man uh, named David for about 15 years, and he really took me under his wing. He hosted a small group in the Reno area, a small Bible study group, and uh, I learned a lot in that. And the, the Bible really had come sort of come to life through these small group meetings. And so I felt God's call on my life at that moment, that point. I thought, you know, instead of learning about God, maybe I need to uh, share, you know, God's uh, love and wisdom with other people. So I, I felt God call uh, me into ministry. And I, uh, so then I subsequently enrolled in a, in a Bible college at Multnomah University. 
uh, in my undergraduate uh, days back in uh, 2013. And then I graduated in 2017 with my, my Bachelor of Art in Biblical and Theological Studies uh, and then decided to keep going and, and went for my Master's of Divinity and got that and was blessed to graduate top of my class in 2020. And then, yeah, now I'm currently enrolled in Denver Seminary uh, in their Doctorate of Ministry program in Spiritual Formation. So um, God's really taken me under his wing and, and had all the provisions for me <laughs> along the yeah. way. Yeah. Um, so that's a little bit about my journey. Yeah, my spiritual journey. Again, we're talking with Craig Prather. He's the author of Transformed by the Spirit. The book is published by Karis Publishing and currently available. Your first chapter is titled Relational Theology, and this is really what we've been talking about in Transformed by the Spirit. We don't often put relational and theology together. Uh, Talk a bit about that and where we begin in this effort to to apply the disciplines that draw us nearer to him by the power of the Holy Spirit, but also make us more like him in that process. Yeah, you know, relationships are are, are very important, and um, kind of as I touched on earlier, it's, you know, psychologically, <laughs> human beings don't do well in isolation. We're, we're, we're you know, very much happier with, with someone there, or a partner there, or even just a friend um, or spouse. And so, uh, you know, sadly, the, the fact's been revealed in the number of increased suicides and things that, um, you know, we, especially during this isolation time with COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but mankind was never meant to be alone. And so God created the entire universe and everything in it. Um, and then, of course, he called it good. Uh, but the only part he doesn't say that's good is when Adam didn't have a partner. And so um, this is kind of, in my opinion, why we have to focus on healthy relationships with both God um, and each other. And by doing that, we build our relationship with God uh, at the same time through the Holy Spirit just by spending time with them, just like we'd spend time with a family member or, or, or a friend or a loved one. Um, we, we spend time and follow. I, I go out every day and uh, enjoy God's creation before me, and I, I pray and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal something to me. And sometimes I have to quiet, and that's hard to do because I like to talk. And uh, so, <laughs> so sometimes I just have to kind of be quiet and let God speak to me. Um, one of my favorite courses was a prayer class that I took in seminary, uh, and the instructor had us just go out into nature and just sit there for four hours, and we weren't allowed to do anything except journal. <laughs> and so. And that was challenging because Satan was, you know, of course, close by trying to distract me at every moment. But, uh, but I got through it, and, and some wonderful revelation came about from reading Scripture and then meditating and praying upon it. And those are all relationship builders. Um, God knows every hair on our head, uh, as the Bible says. So it, I feel it's our obligation uh, to get to know Him better um, as, as being our Creator. And what a tremendous invitation we have been given to draw near to him. And I think sometimes it's lost on us. What an amazing invitation that is, uh, that we're invited at any time into his presence, and he promises to be with us always. Uh, So to decline that invitation uh, is perhaps more revealing of our lack of appreciation than anything else. Yes, that's so true. So true. We're talking with uh, Craig Prather. He's the author of Transformed by the Spirit. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Craig Prather. He has some connection here in the Pacific Northwest. He's also the author most recently of Transformed by the Spirit. The book is published by Karis Publishing and really um, is precisely what it says, being transformed by the Spirit and the things that we can do to cooperate with the Spirit, to draw us nearer to uh, to Him and to one another, and maturing us uh, in the process. One of your chapters focuses on um, spiritual formation throughout the ages. This isn't a, a, a newfangled idea, this this notion of spiritual formation. <laughs> Give us a little bit of that, that history that places us squarely in the mainstream of, of Christianity uh, from from its origins. Yeah, very good. So, you, Christ, yeah, so basically spiritual formation, as you mentioned, yeah, it goes way back. Um, yeah, I, I suppose you could even say to Adam and Eve and, and God himself, but but uh, in terms of, of our, our formation with Christ, uh, you know, the disciples themselves were being formed, you could say, uh, in, in a sense, because they were, they were living with God incarnate and uh, learning from him and spending time with him and building a relationship with him in the form of Jesus Christ. And so um, the process really began there. Um, and of course, not long after, you know, you have several of the, the patriarchs. Um, of course, you know, um, Athanasius, and you've, uh, you've got Anselm, one of the uh, medieval theologians who I, I really respect uh, some of their, their process uh, between Bernard of Clairvaux and Anselm and some of these, these medieval theologians, because what they would do is they would literally go out in the desert, just wait for, you know, God to inspire them and journal what he said. <laughs> and it would often be a lonely time. Um, but they, and I, I model my own practice after that uh, in some of these monastics, um, these these medieval monastics that, that they would they would do that. Uh, Antony, uh, Antony of uh, one of the Desert Fathers, did the same type of practice where he would go out and he'd get these great visions and revelations um, just by praying to God in the Spirit in solitude, um, sometimes for days, sometimes fasting for for weeks at a time. And so throughout the ages, um, you know, Martin Luther, you can uh, name all the all the head honchos in theology. <laughs> I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, they've all taken the time uh, to build the relationship with God that they can thereby extrapolate doctrine or, or uh, their, their own particular theology in some cases um, from those experiences. And it's really, um, again, kind of goes back to that relationship component that, uh, yeah, all of these patriarchs throughout history, from the, t- the disciples till you and I, <laughs> we've, uh, you know, we've all spent time in that, in that uh, building, pro- that relationship building process, and that's yielded fruit for us um, that we can then pass on to others. Yeah. Let's talk about the spiritual disciplines. I mean, that, that word discipline um, is sort of uh, causes people to to shrink back just a bit because discipline is not a, f- a favorable word, even though it it can be such a beautiful <laughs> word. Talk about some of the spiritual disciplines sure. that draw us nearer to Him, at, deepen our understanding of Scripture, and also transform us by the Spirit. Sure, yeah, spiritual disciplines. You know, they there's of course some traditional ones. There there's prayer, of course, and fasting. Um, some other disciplines might be uh, a, what they call a spirit-led tradition, and then that just it basically has a goal of living a balanced uh, spiritual life uh, where you seek to unite the mind and the heart, you know, instead of setting them in opposition to each other. Uh, you're sort of praying for a harmony there. Um, then there's also what they call, uh, you know, the holiness tradition, and then, then that centers around the formation process. 
um, sort of sort of building from the inside out. Um, so you're really focused on an internal perspective of prayer and, and contemplative prayer, uh, where you maybe take a scripture or a passage that you that you've been reading and you sort of meditate on it for a while and ask the Holy Spirit as you're reading it to really reveal some deeper truths uh, to you there. So contemplative prayer is important too. Um, and then of course, just being compassionate towards others, um, loving towards others is another another one of the disciplines. Um, journaling is interestingly enough uh, one of the one of the spiritual disciplines where you you know you maybe you go throughout your day and you've interacted with some challenging times and you want to journal that experience and then reflect upon it later and pray to God and ask how could I have handled that differently or you know what could I have done better and uh, and those are all reflective tools that we use um, you know to really help grow us and of course the Holy Spirit's involved each and every step of the way. <laughs> and so he, uh, he really helps us get through it. Um, they have what's called a rule of life. It's a disciplinary rule. And the rule of life, um, some, as some theologians, they refer to it, uh, it's not really a set of rules necessarily um, that makes us accountable to God, because that would be legalism. <laughs> but uh, instead, it's, it's really disciplinary rules as a pattern of living um, our life. So um, some people, maybe their rule of life is, is that they, they want to fast uh, you know, to uh, take time in fasting uh, instead of, um, you know, eating or whatever, they'll fast from food, or maybe they'll fast actually from just electronics in this day and age or, or TV mm-hmm. or something like that, and then they'll replace that time with prayer. And so that would be like a spiritual rule of life where you, you devote yourself to doing that uh, on a regular basis. You can make a, a rule for your life that I'm going to pray, you know, uh, for this many minutes every day and, and then increase it, or those kind of things. And so, yeah, so reading, of course, reading scripture is obviously a discipline. Uh, meditation, giving thanks, and, and uh, like I said, journaling, those can all be spiritual disciplines as well. You mentioned the assignment that you were given to spend time out in nature for four hours journaling um, and not speaking, yeah. but just just journaling. You have a chapter yeah. in here on yeah. um, spiritual warfare. When we engage in yes. and are purposeful and mindful of pressing into God and drawing nearer to him, it doesn't take place in a vacuum. There is spiritual uh, warfare that goes on, the enemy of our soul who desires to distract us mm-hmm. and minimize the impact that the spirit is making. Can you talk a bit about that chapter mm-hmm. and how? How we should uh, approach this notion of spiritual warfare as we are purposing to um, experience spiritual transformation through the disciplines. Yeah, thanks for asking that. Yeah, you, this is actually one of my favorite chapters of the book. Um, and so, yeah, spiritual warfare is something that I think a lot of Christians tend to put on the back burner or, or even neglect in, in some ways and, and, and sort of you know write it off as. Uh, not a big deal, but it's very much uh, an important piece of of our battle. And uh, and so what I did in that chapter is I basically broke down all of the spiritual armor in Ephesians chapter six. Mm-hmm. Paul lays out um, uh, the belts of truth, you know, breastplate of righteousness. Um, I also did the uh, the feet of readiness and uh, the shield of faith. And of course, um, our our offensive weapon is the sword of the spirit. So all of those are defensive spiritual weapons. Uh, and then, but of course, the sword of the spirit is the word of God, and that's the only offensive weapon that uh, that we really take with us into battle. Uh, that sort of protects us from the enemy in the first place. Um, and so, I highlighted a couple of the metaphorical um, uh, elements of what Paul's talking about in the in a first century context uh, with that, with, regarding the armor itself and sort of how it um, how it protects us, and not only physically but spiritually, and in, in, in is what Paul is really getting at. Um, and yeah, and, and as you mentioned, that that was a great point. Yeah, we're we're really not, you know, just walking through life uh, where where God is 
you know, doing everything for us and we're sort of passively getting by. It's more like we're always in battle <laughs> and Satan's trying to get our mind and, and, and win over our, our heart and our soul and, and God and the Holy Spirit are there defending us at all times. And it's, yeah. uh, it, if you sort of think of, of your life, yeah, in a, in a, in a battlefield, um, that if we could see it, we'd probably freak out and go running for the hills. You know? <laughs> uh, fortunately, God shields us from seeing what's going on in most cases. But uh, it's re- yeah, it's really a battle that uh, that we deal with daily, and and uh, I'm I'm very uh, much a proponent for using that offensive weapon, that that word of God, the sword of the Spirit, um, at all times. So constantly being in the word, because Satan will will come at you at, at any moment, uh, you know, for for the smallest things, and so we have to kind of be on our guard. Uh, offensively so that we know what the word says so we can defend ourselves when he comes at us that way. Yeah. We're just about out of time, but I wanted to to talk just for a moment about the goal of being transformed by the spirit in that we are growing in Christ likeness. That's ultimately uh, what our goal is to become Mm -hmm. more like him. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, uh, second Peter three 18 talks about it. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So um, there's, and there's several, uh, you know, different theologians have different positions. Some, some will, uh, pretty much everyone agrees on some type of sanctification. Some agree it's a once and for all. Some think that it's progressive, which is the view that I take, that we're constantly working towards it. That's how I see it in Scripture. Um, And so what I feel is that as long as we're making the effort um, God honors that, and so he'll always continue to bless us that way. And, and uh, of course, we'll never reach, as I mentioned in the book, we'll never achieve full perfection in this lifetime. <laughs> but Christ has already achieved it for us, and certainly we'll get there uh, once we see him face to face. Yeah, absolutely. He's promised to finish the work that he began in us. There is so much more in your book that time doesn't permit us to, to talk about, but I do want to encourage our listeners to pick up a copy of Transformed by the Spirit. Craig Prather is the uh, author and, again, has a connection with Multnomah University. Just delighted to have you at least by phone back in the Pacific Northwest, and thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. Yeah, it's been my honor. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up next, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing. Well, taking a look at uh, the news of the last several days, uh, the lowest se- the um, COVID-19 test results positive are the lowest that we've seen since the pandemic began. Uh, Frank Luntz says a year ago, nearly 25% of COVID uh, tests were coming back positive. Now it's under 2.5%, which is uh, great news. President Biden plans to ditch student loan forgiveness from his budget, breaking for good reason a campaign promise he made. And despite the CDC mask guidance, the Biden administration might still issue a workplace mandate. CNN's Don Lemon has lost a whopping 77% of viewers since the first week in January. Well, Texas is poised to enact constitutional carry law, and Alabama is banning COVID vaccine passports. So if you don't like it here, you might want to consider Alabama. Minneapolis mayor is acknowledging uh, calls to defund the police have had negative impact on uh, crime as crime has spiked there. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to do that math. And New York City eliminates uh, remote learning for the fall. At least that's what they're saying now. Taiwan has been shut out of the World Health Organization Health Assembly again, despite a White House appeal. And members of Mali's military arrested the president and prime minister, raising fears of a second coup there. 
EU leaders agree on uh, Belarus sanctions after a plane diversion to uh, arrest a journalist. And the G7 has agreed to stop international funding for coal. We'll see how that works out. Well, today in history, 1927, Ford ends production of the Model T after 20 years. 1935, Babe Ruth hits his first three career home runs. Numbers 712, 713, I should say last, um, last three career home runs. 712, 713, and 714 for the Boston Braves in a game against the Pittsburgh Pirates. On this day in history, 1961, President John F. Kennedy tells Congress, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. 1965, Muhammad Ali knocks out Sonny Liston in the first round of their world heavyweight title rematch in Lewiston, Maine. Um, Ali's... um, this uh, victory generated controversy over whether he truly connected when he sent Liston crashing to the canvas with a right to the head or whether it was a phantom punch implying that the fight was fixed. Those who were around at the time probably have an opinion on that. 2008, NASA's uh, Phoenix Mars lander arrives on the red planet to begin searching for evidence of water. The spacecraft confirms the presence of water. Um, water ice, I should say, at its landing site. And finally, on this day in history, 2012, SpaceX becomes the first commercial spacecraft to dock, dock rather, at the International Space Station. Also on this day in history, 2012, Keaton Coffey lost his life serving in the U.S. military, the Marine Corps, as a dog hander, a canine handler. President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin are expected to meet in Geneva next month, the White House announced today, maintaining that the meeting will serve as a tool to manage what will will continue to be deeply challenging relationship between the U.S. and Russia. Well, that meeting is expected to take place in June on the 16th when President Biden and Putin are slated to discuss issues like Iran and North Korea's nuclear capabilities, Syria, the Arctic, strategy, uh, strategic stability, arms control, climate change, COVID-19, and more. Well, the meeting will take place next month while Biden is already in Europe. A source familiar with the arrangements explained. The source said Biden will meet with Putin after meeting uh, with G7 allies so that he can understand their concerns and perspectives on Russia. Well, the source said no significant agreements should be expected from the meeting between the two leaders, but it instead would serve as an opportunity for Biden and Putin to engage in on intentions, plans and perspectives. Well, the source, though, said Biden intends to send a clear, unequivocal message to clarify U.S. intentions while warning of a U.S. response to certain types of Russian activities. Well, the source underscored the importance for Biden to be able to engage with Putin directly to manage what they described as a difficult and complex relationship and describing the meeting as a vital part of protecting American interests. The president, within a week is taking a week of taking office, spoke with Putin over the phone at Putin's request. During that call, a source familiar with uh, uh, that exchange said that Biden told Putin that he would like to meet in person. And this meeting coming up in mid-June represents that uh, request coming to full fruition. President Biden last month speaking with Putin over the phone, he proposed a summit suggesting it take place in a third country outside of the United States and Russia. At the time, the White House said Biden made clear that the United States will act firmly in defense of its national interests in response to Russia's actions such as cyber intrusions and election interference. 
President Biden emphasized the United States' unwavering commitment to Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity, the White House said last month. The president's voice uh, voiced our concern over the sudden Russian military buildup in occupied Crimea and on Ukraine's borders and called on Russia to de-escalate tensions, end quote. Well, during the call, the two also discussed the intent of the U.S. and Russia to pursue a strategic stability dialogue on a range of arms control and emerging security issues to build on the extension of the new START treaty, according to the White House. The START treaty enhances U.S. national security by placing verifiable limits on all Russian deployment Uh, deployed intercontinental range nuclear weapons. The treaty began in February of 2011, and according to the State Department, the U.S. and the Russian Federation have agreed to extend it through February of 2026. But the White House has said that the administration's goal is to have a predictable and stable relationship with Russia. Our approach, and I'm quoting the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki from last month, uh, our approach to Russia is one where we expect the relationship to remain a challenge. Um, she said prepared uh, that they are prepared uh, to confront what they expect to be difficult conversations, but said that the goal is to have a relationship that is predictable and stable. The in-person meeting for the presidents comes after a tense back and forth earlier this year with Biden warning that, that uh, Putin would pay a price following a declassified report from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which contained evidence of attempted Russian interference in the 2020 presidential Election. Biden has sought to pressure Russia through economic sanctions, imposing penalties last week on Russian companies and ships for the, uh, their work on the natural gas pipeline in Europe, though the Biden administration uh, spared the German company overseeing the project, leading to frustration from both Republican and Democrat uh, Democratic lawmakers. At, uh, and last month, the Biden administration imposed a raft of new sanctions on Russia for its attempted interference in the 2020 election and a Kremlin-linked cyber attack that penetrated multiple federal agencies. Uh, The measure sanctioned 32 entities and individuals who sought to influence the outcome of the election last year under orders from the Russian government. And the White House also expelled 10 Russian diplomats working in Washington, including some intelligence officers. In addition to those actions, the administration barred U.S. financial institutions from buying Russian bonds directly from the Russian Central Bank, Finance Ministry and Sovereign Wealth Fund, limiting uh, Moscow's ability to borrow money. Those limits will take effect on the 14th of June, which coincides, of course, with that meeting President Biden will have with President Putin. Now, the Kremlin has denied any involvement in U.S. elections or the SolarWinds uh, computer hack, which uh, began last year when malicious code was uh, snuck into updates to popular software that monitors computer networks of businesses and governments. President Biden informed Putin of the sanctions in advance of issuing the measures, explaining why they were imposed according to a source. Well, at the time, the Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman, uh, Maria Zakharova, she warned that uh, such aggressive behavior will undoubtedly trigger a resolute retaliation uh, from the Russian government. Washington should realize that it will have to pay a price for the degradation of the bilateral ties, she said, adding that the responsibility for that will fully lie with the United States. Well, that raft of sanctions came after the Biden administration earlier this year sanctioned seven mid-level and senior Russian officials, along with more than a dozen government entities, over nearly uh, a nearly fatal nerve agent attack on opposition leader Alexei Navalny and his subsequent jailing. Well, that story continues when the president meet, presidents, I should say, meet in mid-June. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. If you didn't have the opportunity to listen in to the first hour of the program, I would encourage you to check out the podcast. In the uh, second half of the first hour, we talked with Craig Prather, who is an adjunct professor at Multnomah University. His latest book, Transformed by the Spirit, we're going to talk about, or we did talk about, spiritual formation. You can find that book, uh, which is currently available, published by Karis, that's with a K, Karis Publishing. Again, the podcast you can find at Georgine, uh, the Georgine Rice Show at kpdq.com. Well, Neville Chamberlain tried to appease Hitler and World War II resulted. By trying to appease the Ayatollahs and Iran, Joe Biden may have started us down a path to World War III. So says Oliver North and David uh, Goch. Um, on the day Biden became president, Iranian-built missiles began to rain down on Israel, America's closest ally in the Middle East and the only democracy in that troubled region. They write that these missiles aimed at Israeli civilians were launched from Gaza by Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps provides both terror organizations and uh, with funding and arms. Uh, their missile launches from Gaza between January and early May uh, were a test of the Biden administration's medal, And perhaps the more recent a barrage of bombs was another test. Well, accurately perceiving Chamberlain-like weakness in the Biden uh, administration, the Iranians urged Hamas and Islamic Jihad to launch more than 600 missiles between May 10th and 11th against Israeli civilizations in Steret, in Ashkelon, Jerusalem, and Tel Aviv. By the 16th of January, the Palestinian terror organizations had launched more than 3,000 missiles and incendiary weapons against Israeli civilians. Nearly 90% of these deadly warheads aimed at towns and cities are being intercepted by Israelis by Israel's Iron Dome defense system, but dozens of Israeli civilians have been killed and wounded. Every volley of missiles from Gaza prompts Israeli airstrikes and artillery fire against terror targets where Hamas uses Palestinian civilians as human shields. In our previous column, again, Oliver North and David Goch, uh, we warned how Biden's weakness in foreign policy puts the United States and its allies in peril by emboldening Iran's IRGC and the terrorist groups they support. We cautioned Biden's offer to reopen talks with Tehran on JCOPA, um, the Iranian nuclear deal uh, would be perceived by friends and allies as a lack of resolve. These uh, alerts have fallen on deaf ears. Continuous Iranian-provoked rockets attacked on uh, Israeli civilians should tell the Biden administration their goal of sustainable calm is a phony solution. It is, in fact, an, an open door to Iranian aggression against Israel that could well ignite a worldwide conflagration. The Biden administration's public acknowledgement Israel has a right to defend itself is certainly valid, but the privately issued demand to de-escalate now from Blinken to Israeli Foreign Minister Gabi Ashkenazi tells the truth about Biden's anti-Israel foreign policy. Demanding unilateral de-escalation by Israel is tantamount to insisting Israel forego defending itself. This is an impossible choice for the Jewish nation. Weakness and appeasement invite further aggression by Iranian proxies in Syria, in Lebanon, and in Iraq. Conflict between Israel and Hamas is not new. They uh, have fought three uh, wars since 2007 when Hamas took control of Gaza. Each successive conflict has escalated beyond the scope of previous conflicts, but the attacks since May 10th dwarf previous assaults. Fortunately, Prime Minister Netanyahu is uh, made of sterner stuff than Biden. He has promised Hamas will pay dearly for its attack on Israel, a promise he is already keeping and kept. He has also 
quietly made clear to the Biden administration their demands for Israeli de-escalation are unacceptable. The Israeli defense forces are defending their country. The extent to which this conflict escalates is in the hands of President Biden, not Netanyahu. If the president wants to prevent a wider war against our democratic ally, he ought to make clear the United States condemns all attacks on Israel from any quarter and withhold any further economic aid to Palestinian entities. And just to make sure this message is received where it matters most, he should announce the U.S. is withdrawing from the so-called talks in Vienna on a new Iran um, Iran nuclear weapons deal and reinstate all economic sanctions on the Ayatollah in Tehran. Doing so would most assuredly ensure the current aggression will abate. Failure to do these things will allow Iranian aggression to escalate, and history teaches where that could lead. Well, certainly it's wise to recognize the role that Iran has played in this latest um, conflagration, as well as those uh, two prior to this latest uh, salvo. Well, the U.S. Department of Justice announced on Monday that it plans to partially appeal a court ruling earlier this month that called for the release of a legal memorandum the Trump-era Justice Department prepared for then-Attorney General William Barr before he announced his conclusion that President Trump did not obstruct justice during the Russian investigation. Well, the Department of Justice announced its decision just before the midnight deadline and appealed to the U.S. District Judge Amy Berman Jackson to stay her May 3rd decision during that appeals process. The department, which is led by Attorney General Merrick Garland, said in a court filing that the government acknowledges that its brief could have been clearer and it deeply regrets the confusion that it caused. But the government's uh, counsel and uh, declarations did not intend to mislead the court. The judge said earlier this month that Barr's Justice Department had obscured the true purpose of the memorandum when it withheld the document. Well, Jackson chastised Barr for his general handling of the Robert Mueller report, saying his characterization of what he'd hardly had time to skim, much less study closely, prompted an immediate reaction as politicians and pundits took to their microphones and Twitter feeds to decry what they feared was an attempt to hide the ball. We'll see what happens next in this back and forth. Meanwhile, former President Donald Trump has launched a communications platform which uh, will serve as a place to speak freely and safely and will eventually give him the ability to communicate directly with his followers after months of being banned from sites like Twitter and Facebook. The platform is simply titled from the desk of Donald J. Trump. It appears on DonaldJTrump.com slash desk. Well, the space allows Trump to post comments, images, and videos in a time of silence and lies. A video Trump posted to the platform on Tuesday night says the video then plays uh, news reports describing his suspension from Twitter. A beacon of freedom arises, a place to speak freely and safely. The video continues uh, showing the new platform straight from the desk of Donald J. Trump. Well, the technology appears to be powered by Campaign Nucleus, the digital ecosystem made for efficiently managing political campaigns and organizations created by his former campaign manager, Brad uh, Pascal. Uh, The space allows Trump to post and allows followers to share the former president's post to Twitter and Facebook. However, the new platform does not have a feature to allow users to reply or engage with Trump posts. That's a a major shortcoming for those who want to communicate. This is just a one-way communication. One source familiar with the space says this system allows Trump to communicate with his followers, but not the other way around. The site has a sign-up list for people to enter their phone numbers and email addresses in order to receive alerts for when uh, Trump posts uh, a new message. Well, Trump's new platform surfaced on Tuesday after advisors 
said that the former president planned to move forward to create a social media platform of his own after being banned from Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Snapchat after the Capitol riot. President Trump's website is a great resource, uh, says uh, Jason Miller, a senior advisor, uh, to find his latest statements and highlights. Well, the rollout of the platform also comes just a day before Facebook's oversight board is expected to announce its decision on whether to indefinitely suspend Trump from Facebook and Instagram. Well, the board in January accepted a case uh, referral from Facebook to examine the the, uh, ban, as well as to provide policy recommendations on suspensions when the user is a political leader. Facebook moved to block Trump indefinitely after the January 6th riot in the U.S. Capitol, with CEO Mark Zuckerberg saying that they believe the risk of allowing the president to continue to use their service during this period uh, is simply too great, end quote. Well, regardless of Facebook's decision on uh, Wednesday, a Twitter spokesperson told Fox News that Trump is permanently suspended from tweeting, uh, something he was um, quite um, proficient at. A Facebook spokesperson declined to comment on Trump's new platform. A Twitter spokesperson did not immediately respond uh, to request for uh, comment either. But the president or former president has now established a platform of his own. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, this past year has uh, tested us as Americans. It's tested us virtually in every way. We lost loved ones and jobs and the ability to connect with one another in person. But as Americans, um, we can get through the pandemic. We will and we are. The existential fear for our nation doesn't involve the pandemic, but rather the decisions that we're letting our leaders make, which are imperiling our children's future. Gary Shapiro points out that there are four in particular that we need to be familiar with, aware of, and opposed to. The first are growing, choking debt. I know nobody likes to talk about it, but it's relevant. In 2022, the federal government will owe close to $30 trillion. Each Congress and president since Bill Clinton, the last president to balance the budget, has added trillions to our debt. Republicans have expanded the debt by cutting taxes, reducing revenue while barely cutting government. Democrats have grown the debt by well-meaning entitlement and spending programs. In 2000, the debt was just a few trillion dollars, but it's gone up more than five-fold since then, and we must also pay interest on that debt. Rising interest rates could uh, soon mean, well, less federal money for anything other than interest payments and spending on entitlements. Say goodbye to all domestic spending and most defense spending, or we'll borrow even more until the nation has an economic collapse. As investors uh, refuse to buy our debt, unless we further raise the interest rate we pay. We could shift from the land of opportunity to the land of indebtedness in just a few years. Number two, the decline of responsibility and the work ethic. We have shifted from a national spirit and culture of self-reliance with religious institutions and neighbors helping neighbors and um, backstopping communities to federal policies that reward and encourage some of the very actions that break down the firmest foundations of America, namely hard work and strong families. Why should uh, student loans be forgiven wholesale when other students scraped by and saved for college? 
Why should we subsidize students with degrees in programs where there are no available jobs? Why should we give cash payments to most Americans, including the employed, because of the pandemic? Furthermore, benefits are causing many workers to make more from unemployment than from employment, making it harder for some employers to find the workers they need. Indeed, Montana announced that it will no longer accept the federal supplement insurance benefits. The biggest uh, complaint of American employers, large and small, is not the pandemic, but the inability to hire anyone to work. Americans face shortages of goods. faced shortages of goods, couldn't get their homes repaired in a timely manner, and waited weeks or even months for deliveries that usually took days because government-imposed restrictions limited physical supply chains. And while those uh, problems have abated, government unemployment benefits are still limiting the supply of willing workers and making it, well, harder for businesses to recover. Yet, in March, $1.9 trillion stimulus package increased unemployment benefits Uh, could encourage some Americans to remain out of the workforce. That makes uh, sense for many um, hospitality workers and others sidelined by the pandemic who can't relocate or lack skills employers want. But we have millions of unfilled job openings for truck drivers, healthcare aides, and factory workers. Why would we want to encourage Americans to not work and have future generations pay for this subsidy? Also, absurdity. Well, loss of civility and push toward extremes. Well, some political leaders are poor role models for our children. They talk about bipartisanship and reducing spending, but care only about complete party domination. They ignore the other side. Some of our national political leaders view their jobs as being to breed hatred of the other party. We effectively enable them as we choose our, uh, our team or tribe, and many of us have become haters of the other side also known as Our Neighbors. The top leaders have even abandoned the congressional committee process, putting out only their own legislation, controlling their compliant party members by uh, funding much of their political campaigns and isolating uh, any party member who dares to disagree. Frustrated uh, lawmakers from both parties think that they have no choice but to go along with their leaders or uh, to be certain to lose their next election for lack of funding. Meanwhile, most legislators are already on the far left or the far right with a disappearing middle. One group, the Problem Solvers Caucus, has stood up boldly, created across-the-aisle relationships, built trust, and often forced real discussion and produced bipartisan legislation. Let's hope that group continues to grow. Also, the decline of trust and common beliefs. Americans increasingly distrust each other and or the government. Many Americans simply don't believe the 2020 national election was conducted fairly. Some believe the pandemic is a hoax and many refuse to get uh, vaccinated because they think it's unnecessary and dangerous. Social isolation has enhanced distrust as it reduced friendly interactions with colleagues and neighbors to discuss and to listen to different points of view. And social media... Despite connecting with uh, uh, friends and family with the pandemic, at times replaces more friendly and polite uh, physical interactions and actual conversation with an unconstructive and often toxic ethos. Well, instead, we're increasingly assuming bad intentions rather than give the benefit of the doubt we would give to someone we know well. We see violence in our cities and at, uh, at the Capitol. We witness hatred by Americans against Americans, and we wonder What it is, uh, besides geography and language, that binds Americans together? I'm sad and concerned. I'm sad because I believe in the shining city on the hill that President Ronald Reagan spoke of so many years ago. Our nation formed by immigrants and built on fundamental human rights is deteriorating 
It's being destroyed by leaders in both parties, sometimes with good intentions, but sometimes not. The parties don't matter. Our children do, and I'm concerned that we're leaving them a nation of debt, of distrust, and indolence, looking to government in lieu of the self-reliance we once had. I yearn for a party focused on national greatness, not fueled by hatred of the other party, for a return to decency, trust, and respect for other opinions, and for a party welcoming uh, to those who can debate and respectfully disagree and seek common ground. As Americans, we share this incredible gift of a nation blessed by wealth and natural resources and based on, on a belief in the inherent goodness of humans. Well, to a degree, it's a nation whose governor government's uh, role was to protect human rights and those same rights of freedom of religion, expression, association, uh, accessing information and owning property are critical to the continuous flow of ideas and innovation in which we excel and lead the world. And while we're dividing and fighting among ourselves, China, whose government believes in none of those rights, is expanding its influence and seeking to remake the world in its own image, its own totalitarian image. If we care about the nation, we leave our children and their rights and character. We must demand that our leaders be accountable. We must embrace new leaders who will commit to finding common ground based on an honest acknowledgement of agreed on facts and steeped in shared principles such as preserving the values of work, human rights, and the principles that bind us and drive us, our economy and our greatness. I wonder if that nation, that city on a hill, still exists. Meanwhile, a children's show on PBS featured drag queen and author Lil Miss Hot Mess singing, dancing, and reading a book about drag queens to an intended audience of three to eight years old. Says... um, Little Miss Hot Mess. Today I'm going to read from my own book, which is The Hips on the Drag Queen Go Swish, Swish, Swish. She's reportedly one of the founding members of the Drag Queen Story Hour. I wrote this book because I wanted everyone to get to experience the magic of drag and to get a little practice shaking their hips or shimmying their shoulders to know how we can feel fabulous inside of our own bodies. That's a quote from Little Miss Hot Mess. Well, the book is intended to be sung along with um, uh, to the tune of The Wheels on the Bus, uh, he says. It features the drag characters Frida Bay Me, uh, Jacqueline Jill, Stinker Bell, Rita Book, Mother Lucy Goosey, Cinderfella, Pina Butter well, Jelly, uh, and others. I won't try to figure the rest of them out. It follows a drag queen who performs her uh, his routine in front of an awestruck audience, end quote. Well, Lil Miss Hot Mess, as he calls himself, read the book to the virtual audience, encouraging viewers to snap their their fingers, clap their hands, shimmy, twirl, dance, shake their hips, and put on makeup. According to the video, again, the audience intended three to eight. Being a drag queen is about being bold, shining bright, and showing a little bit of bravery. The episode is part of a series, Let's Learn, a public television series produced in partnership by PBS member stations, WNET, and the New York City Department of Education, WNET. The spokesperson uh, for the Daily Caller points out, you should be aware that the program is being aired across the country. uh, And if you disagree with the Drag Queen Story Hour, you might want to check your local listings to assure that your children are not subjected to that form of entertainment. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the first total lunar eclipse in more than two years coincides with the supermoon this week. They're quite a cosmic show. The super, uh, they call it a super blood moon, is going to be visible Wednesday across the Pacific if there are no clouds, offering the best viewing as well as the western half of the North America, bottom of South America, and Eastern Asia. You better look quick. The total eclipse will last about 15 minutes as Earth passes directly between the moon and the sun. But the entire show will last five hours as Earth's shadow gradually covers the moon. That starts to uh, to ebb. The reddish-orange color is the result of uh, all of the sunrises and sunsets in Earth's atmosphere projected onto the surface of the eclipsed moon. Hawaii has the best seat in the house, and then short of that will be California and the Pacific Northwest. That's what Noah Petro from uh, NASA, he's the project scientist for the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, uh, New Zealand and Australia also will have prime viewing. Well, in one week, a full moon near the, its closest uh, point of, to Earth in its uh, orbit is going to cross into Earth's shadow. That makes a superlunar eclipse or, if you will, a super blood moon circling the moon for 12 years. The orbiter will measure temperatures, changes on the lunar surface during the eclipse. Telescopes atop Hawaii's um, Mauna Kea uh, also will monitor the moon, according to Mr. Petro. Well, the moon will be setting and the sun rising along the U.S. east coast, leaving sky gazers uh, pretty much out of luck. Europe, Africa, and Western Asia will miss everything. There will be live streams available, however. Everyone everywhere, though, can still soak in the brighter than usual moon, weather permitting. And that's, of course, always the case here in the Pacific Northwest, weather permitting. The moon will be more than 220,000 miles away at its fullest. It's uh, this proximity combined with the full moon that qualifies it as the supermoon, making it appear slightly bigger and more brilliant in the sky. Last month's supermoon, by contrast, was... um, 96 miles uh, more distant, so 220,096 miles. Um, For people who might feel like we're missing out, set your calendars for November 19th of this year. Uh, Mr. Petro from NASA said this will be a nearly total eclipse where the moon dims but doesn't turn red. The next total lunar eclipse will be May of 2022. The last one was January of 2019. So if the Lord wills and we live, we might get to witness that one. I began the program by acknowledging a young man I never had the opportunity to meet while he was living, but who made the uh, decision to serve his country. He lost his life in that service, and today marks the anniversary, the nine-year anniversary, when uh, Corporal Keaton Grant Coffey, United States Marine Corps canine handler, lost his life serving the United States. I um, have on my personal calendar the calendar on my phone that I reference every day. I have that anniversary on that calendar. I've made the decision that I'm going to remember this young man. I'm going to remember his face from the pictures that I've seen. I'm going to remember the faces of his parents and others who have supported him in events around uh, our community over the last nine years. And he has come to me to represent so many others from our uh, community, uh, the state of Oregon and our respective um, smaller communities who paid the ultimate price. And as Memorial Day approaches, I wanted to begin and end today's program reflecting on Corporal Keaton Coffey, uh, Grant Coffey. His father posted some pictures as well as some information about um, his son. And I wanted to share with you what he wrote on Facebook uh, today. He wrote, it's been an unbelievable nine years since I lost the light of my life. Corporal Keaton Grant Coffey, USMC K-9 handler. He was 22 years old, attached to Special Ops 
MARSOC Team 8123 and fell beside his brothers in battle on 524-12 in Helmand, Afghanistan. With all of the negative nonsense that we've experienced over the last year, let Keaton's sacrifice awaken you to what is truly good in this world. Keaton heard the call and answered unwaveringly. Isaiah 6-8 says this, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And I said, Here I am, send me. With Memorial Day approaching, never forget that ordinary people can sleep well at night because rough men stand ready to visit violence on those who would do us harm. My son was a warrior, well-respected by his fellow warriors, and though I lost my only son, I've gained dozens more. The Lord has given me these trials, and because of my boy, I have learned this. You are not defined, not um, what you destroy. I should say you are defined not by what you destroy, but by what you build. Not by what you take, but by what you give. Not by who you hated, but by who you loved. Not that you left, but rather by what you left behind. My son was a Christian man and sits in the presence of our Lord alongside fellow heroes. But let this be motivation for you to live for a higher purpose and also to reject and fight the evils of this world and to respect and honor our living heroes. Military, fire, police, dispatch, medical personnel reject any efforts to cheapen their service. I have included some of the tributes that are on the web today in honor of my precious son, Keaton, Semper Fi, and God bless all of you. There is a website you can um, Google or somehow search Corporal Keaton Grant Coffee, and that was written by his um, father, Grant Coffee. Today being the anniversary of his death, serving in the U.S. military just some nine years ago. Well, David Ayers points out that when he visits his family physician, he starts by checking his vitals. It's amazing how critical simple things like blood pressure, temperature, and pulse actually are. He's a social scientist, and he points out that we social scientists know that vital signs matter in organized religion, too. There are a lot of details that we can look at, but basics, such as how many people identify with churches, whether they attend services regularly or apply their faith to their uh, daily lives, are awful important. Here is what we know. The vital signs of American Christianity are in serious decline. Recently, I compared crucial vital signs for Americans aged 18 to 44, surveyed in the respected National Survey of Family Growth. I compared the data released in 2013 to the same survey released just six years later in 2019, and here's what the data shows. For both males and females, membership in evangelical Protestant, mainline Protestant, and historically black Protestant churches declined a lot. Meanwhile, those professing no religious faith, called nuns in sociological circles, rose sharply from 26% to 38% among males and from 22% to 28% among females. Within each of these three divisions of Protestantism, the percentage of both males and females who reportedly attended church every week or more declined quite a bit, while those who attended rarely or never increased the percentages of both males and females who claim that their faith is very important in their daily lives also sank in each of these Protestant groups. Meanwhile, Protestantism especially is uh, on life support. In this survey and uh, age group, the numbers went down one-fifth and were um, only 12% in the latest survey. Among mainliners, only 20% of males and 28% of females went to church every week. 28% of males and 18% of females said that they 
never go to church, and only 28% of males and 40% of females consider their faith to be very important. Optimistically, this means that less than 5% of Americans from 18 to 44 are actively committed to a mainline Protestant church. This is a double uh, decline whammy. The numbers are dropping, and the commitment to those who remain is also falling among our young people, early middle-aged adults. The future of American Protestantism is in steep decline. Well, he goes on in um, his report. Uh, he covers uh, what's going on in Catholics um, and what needs to be done about it. You can find that uh, Patriot post. It's uh, dated May 15th, The Vital Signs of American Christianity. And the survey that he makes reference to is uh, always worth consulting, the National Survey of Family Growth, referring to the church. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Join us here tomorrow for our Food for the Poor Radiothon. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs>